My name is Jennifer Carroll, and I am the lawyer's daughter. And it, it's nothing I chose, but I have been part of the Golden State Killer case in California because my father and my stepmother were both murdered. Now we know by Joseph D'Angelo. At the time, we just thought it was a stranger and a horrible, horrible murder in a small town. And it took 40 years to find out that was not the case. It, it evolved over the span of the 40 years to find out first it was connected to killers in the, in the Southern California area because Ventura is in Southern California. And then to find out it was connected to a massive series of rapes in Northern California, one man, all these crimes. And we finally got him convicted in August of 2020. Just talk about that first, because that I watched the, I watched the trial and stuff like that. And you guys were amazing. Like you're so strong, but just talk about the trial. And I mean, he pled guilty in the end. He took a deal, but just talk a wee bit about that. Cause that was great to see you guys. So the, maybe one of the most amazing parts of the whole um, trial crimes, whatever you want to call it, this whole event is that it brought together the survivors. And I remember thinking when I first found out that my dad and my stepmom, Lyman and Charlene, my dad and Charlene's uh, murder was associated with these rapes. I remember so vividly thinking, oh my God, I could meet the women one day from these rapes who could explain to me what happened in the house. Because, you know, we just, in, in my experience versus the women who were sexually assaulted, I just, we didn't know a lot what happened in the house. We just knew we had dead people and a horrible, yeah. horrible, awful crime scene. Even at the time I was 18 years old, I didn't understand how bad the crime scene was. Yeah. And so as we, as we moved forward and I, and the trial, we finally had an arrest. We had that arrest in 2017, which was mind blowing. Um, we all met each other at court, all the victims, all the survivors, whatever you want to call it. Um, it feels like victims when you're in court, but it feels like survivors when you're not in court. And now it feels like survivors, but they had such a um, vastly different experience than I did because I had dead people and they had survived. I mean, they felt him breathe on their neck. That, yeah. that always, that's a, that's a feeling I don't have. And it's a chill that I, ugh, I just, it gives me chills when I think about that they actually had to feel him breathe on their neck. Mm. But when we all met, um, things started to click. Like we just kind of all fell for each other. And I always said like D'Angelo had a type, but he couldn't know until we were all together what his type was, but it was intelligent women. Yeah. So he, and, and we were all roughly the same age. I, I would say like a 15 year window, but, but basically we had all grown up and were adult women. And because of that, and because of some amazing um, circumstances that allowed a few of the women, including Carol Daly and Chris Pedretti to host us in their homes, we started to come together. And so what you saw in the trial and what fueled us behind the scenes was, was our sisterhood and, and brotherhood too, because yeah. husbands were there too, some of the men who had been part of his attacks. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so it, it became this, um, this army of survivors. And out of that came a lot of strength people deciding they didn't want to be Jane or John Doe's yeah. people deciding that shame does not belong to the um, survivor, but it belongs to the defendant and the offender. Yeah. And yeah. so it became part of the unspoken effort among our team to back each other up. And so, and, and I'm going to tell you an amazing thing that happened because of this, this um, 
this experience that brought us together that we became this army of victims. And somewhere around March of, uh, two, of 2020, I did a podcast and what I had uncovered and in working with the victims and it was becoming very um, obvious, but what I was really not even uncovered, what I was angry about was that there were different classes of victims. So there were victims that had, um, that had no way to charge D'Angelo because of the statute of limitations and victims that had charges like mine, murder is always chargeable. So my, I instantly saw my charges as representing all because I had to still fight for conviction because he wasn't going to be able to be convicted out of the charges. We also had another way that victims uh, were being um, separated. One was by jurisdiction. So this crime involved six jurisdictions okay. in California. That would be by county. And so because we were in six different counties, different people were getting different information. It, it was actually it was beyond annoying. It was really debilitating to have none of us get all the same information at the same time. So on the podcast, the Lawyer's Daughter podcast on March 5th, I believe it was, of 2020, I did a podcast about all of us were the same. And no matter what, no matter these disparis disparities, we all were all for one and one for all. Yeah. We even embraced that all of us wanted different outcomes for D'Angelo. I'm not, I do not believe in the death penalty. And it's ironic because it's my dad who taught me that he, but he was a lawyer. And that's, that's the lens by which I have viewed this case because of my father being a lawyer and growing up in that house where everything was rational and argued to death. Yeah. Yeah. So to, to, to make, to see victims being treated differently was a big deal to me. So the next day, or a week later, I believe I had met with the defense. That's D'Angelo's lawyers. So I met with the defense. And in, when I did that, when I walked up, I knew, I knew who they were because I'd seen them in court. And um, they were looking at me. We're outside. We're outside the building. And I'm walking up. And they're looking at me. And I'm like, oh, I think they knew who I am. And when we get in to the, like, hi, I'm Jennifer. And they're like, we know. And I go, of course they know because I have a big mouth. Um, so we get in and we go into conference because we're there to have a discussion. And the first thing they say to me um, is Joe Crest said to me, that's the man you'll see everywhere. The guy, he's uh, steely. This guy is so good. Um, he's good. He's the defense lawyer. He's good. Yeah. He says to me, he goes, I listened to your podcast. And I said, uh, oh, because I was a little <laughs> embarrassed because I had disparaged them a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. So I was a little bit uh, held accountable, but I said, you know, I, we had a good conversation about it after that. And it turns out, and the reason I'm telling you this story is it turns out that was really important that they were listening to my podcast. What I didn't know behind the scenes was happening. And this is the stuff that comes out later behind the scenes, the defense and the prosecution had not been talking to each other. Okay. That is okay. why the defense put shopped the idea of a plea deal in a footnote of a motion. Now, if you think about that, that's really dumb because you taint the jury pool. If everybody knows that D'Angelo is willing to plea, you've just affected the jury. So it's an interesting tactic for the defense to take. I actually asked him about it in that meeting, but I don't, I'll tell you that later. But, um, but what had happened is that because they weren't talking to one another, no progress was being made. But after our meeting and after they heard the podcast and after they understood what we were asking for as a group of survivors, and there were three of us that were essentially the ringleaders on this charge, um, Chris Pedretti, Gay Hardwick and myself, uh, Joe Cress, D'Angelo's attorney, got an idea. And that was to have D'Angelo plea 
or take responsibility for the crimes that weren't being charged. And that broke everything open. So it turns out when you look at this story, the victims ended up having a tremendous impact on the outcome. And we couldn't have known then, because honestly, I was bummed about a plea deal. I wanted him to at least have to sit through what we call um, a preliminary hearing here. I think of it as a preliminary trial. It's where they, it's instead of a grand jury, which some folks might be a bit, might be familiar with, it's where they just review and make sure there's enough evidence to convict or to, to bring to bring the case, not to convict, enough evidence to bring the case to trial. And I wanted that because I felt like Joe had never had to sit in a room and be held accountable, held accountable. and listen to the things that he had done. Well, as it turned out, um, plea deals are very, very good things. They, especially when you're dealing with somebody at this advanced age who is basically just human garbage, we need to just sweep off the street at this point. I just wanted him locked up. I really wanted him with the general population. I wanted him to have to face his peers, honestly. But the plea deal happened and it was amazing. And he took responsibility for all the crimes beyond those which would have been incredibly hard to convict or not allowed to convict at all. So it was a real good story. Sorry, a long story, but a really good story of how survivors coming together create um, momentum. They create, create their own force. And I did have to stand up in the court and listen to the statements that were read out and stuff as well, didn't they? For everybody. It was, was so that part was amazing. And if folks listening haven't had a chance to listen to some of the statements, they're they're out there. Some of them are off of my lawyersdaughter.com webpage. I've got links to some of them. I should go check and make sure they're current. But they're they're amazing statements. And the judge. Now, I had an advantage because I was on day three, I believe. And so I got to see the ju- how much leeway the judge was giving people. Mm-hmm. And he really let us say what we needed to say. He did not control anything. Yeah. The judge was, um, I think, incredibly fair with D'Angelo, like incredibly fair. Some things that were driving us nuts, but at the same time, incredibly fair to the survivors. So I really hold him in high esteem. Yeah. What was that like? Firstly, what was it like when you found out that he'd been arrested? I didn't believe that he had been arrested. Like, I didn't believe it. When my friend texted me, it was really early in the morning. And now, as you know, I'm not the best morning person. So <laughs> when I saw the text, I I didn't even know what the heck. She, she sent a text and said, they've made an arrest. And I'm like, well, whoopity-doo. I didn't know what she was talking about. And of course, to her, it was like, there's only one thing in your world that needs an arrest. <laughs> and um, so then I had to kind of do the old shake it off like a cartoon character and clear my head. And then um, I remember just just being in my bed and shaking, like just shaking mm-hmm. and, and not knowing really what to do next. I, I tried to reach out to my family. The news had broken in Sacramento the night before, but I I just didn't see it. I just hadn't, I'd been really busy with work. So I was actually exhausted. <laughs> I'd just gotten back from a huge trade show. So I was kind of in the do laundry, where is, yes. are there groceries in the house kind of mode. I wasn't in any way a working awake <laughs> person. So yeah, in the, in the arrest, for me, my house turned into a, I, I did one thing I had never done that day. Once the district attorney confirmed it was a hundred percent DNA match. I needed to know he was DNA guilty because then I could relax. So 100% DNA match. 
sorry, I still sigh over that one because that one still is, it's like talk about a needle in a haystack, right? So um, the thing that happened next is that the, the major thing that I did that I had never done in my whole entire life, and mind you, I am 56 when this happens, um, I put my old name, Jennifer Smith, with my new name, Jennifer Carroll, publicly on social media. I had media trucks in front of my house within 30 minutes. I did not talk about unintended consequences. I had no idea <laughs> that would happen next. None. In fact, my street that there were media here till 11 o'clock that night. I never ate that day. Um, there was, there were vans and trucks and everything out in my street. It was crazy. New York times, uh, the globe, the mail, the, I mean, just everybody. Everyone, yeah. What so was that like, that must've been so overwhelming. That's um, the only thing that I can say, because I think it would have been overwhelming, except the week before, I mean, this is just kismet. The week before I had been at a big trade show, as I mentioned, and I was um, VP of marketing. So I had just done a ton of media. I mean, so much media. So, so when it showed up, um, I think had I not already kind of just had rehearsed those muscles, I would have been a wreck, overwhelmed, just not knowing what to do. But because I had just done it. I kind of understood. I know what they're looking for. I know what they want. I know how to grab a shot and how to hold the light, hold the mic, say my name, all the silly stuff that can really throw you. I knew how to do all that. So all I had to think about was my reaction. And then again, because of marketing, I kind of knew how to stick to key messages, you know, just what is it I really want to say and pound that. So, and also you're, it is surreal. Like you really don't realize yeah. you're living a day. It yes. just happens to you. It's like, um, I, you know, I, yeah, I was telling people like when I heard about D'Angelo in some weird ways, it was like 9-11. And here's what I mean is on 9-11, um, you didn't know what feelings you were having. Yeah. That, that's how it was the same. Like th th there's too much. There's part of you that doesn't believe it's even happening. There's part of you that wants to go back in time. Like, wait, what's, what's going on? I just, this is all like too mm -hmm. much and then terror scared. And so I felt kind of all those things that day. Like I didn't even know how to feel, which yeah. I think is normal. I'm yeah. anybody who's ever going through anything like this. Don't worry if you don't know how to feel that's yeah. so <laughs> normal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I wanted to talk to you a bit about the podcast. So what made you start the podcast? I am um, a writer when I'm, I, I think I have big ideas and I have things to say. So I'm a writer. And I had been blogging about the, the trial. I started in 2017 blogging and I realized I couldn't go fast enough. And mm -hmm. with, and I thought the preliminary hearing, the, the preliminary trial was coming up. So I decided the fastest way I could do this and the kind of cool thing that I had that other people don't is I had inside access because yeah. I'm allowed in the room. I'm allowed to ask questions. And I also, people trusted me. And I have to say, I'm very grateful because I knew I had to walk the line between, I'm going to tell you something you cannot broadcast because mm -hmm. um, you need to know. And so I, I knew that I know how that worked. I, I had been a... Um, journalism student and I understood the idea of sometimes you got to know stuff you can't talk about and sometimes you can use that information to at least go get the story yourself and yeah. so I broke I was the podcast was my way of um pretending I was a reporter uh, and I smile when I say that because I absolutely know that was part of my fantasy um but it also meant something to me and it, what yeah. really I wanted to do and what I had found my role had become in the group was to explain the law 
explain the nuance, explain what was really going on behind the scenes, tear apart the motions. Again, I'm not a lawyer, um, but I'm capable of doing research. And I was blessed with a district attorney, well, actually a chief prosecutor, the salaried person in my county in Ventura, who took me under her wing and would explain stuff to me too. So she, I don't think she listened to my podcast actually, but when I could get information from her, even what to go learn about and talk about, um, that, that helped me tell the story that was going on that we were all living through. So the podcast became, and I, oh my God. And I love my listeners. I can't even like, I have the best listeners and they ask good questions and they, I, for this is a good interview because I haven't podcasted in a while because it just doesn't. (laughs) It's hard. This pandemic is really getting me down. It's just really gotten yeah. me down. Uh, the pandemic has just done yeah. a real number on me. But, but the podcast became this amazing relationship. And some of my favorite podcasts are the ones where there's Zoom meetings and we're all just um, talking about the case. Like we're all like, like we're at a bar, having a good time, <laughs> jawing about the case. And I love hearing what you guys are seeing because yeah. I, of course, only have my point of view. So to hear how other people saw it, in fact. It was because of a Zoom meeting during the um, victim impact statements. We ha- every day I held the Zoom meeting afterwards to see what everybody else saw from the day because I was clearly living it. And that's when they, that's one of the listeners had told me that they caught D'Angelo on hot mic after the trial. Okay. And so when I opened my victim impact statement, I say something really weird and you have to be inside baseball to know what it meant. But I talk about looking at six things. It's so hard to look at six points. Well, it had turned out that Joe D'Angelo was only looking at six places to avoid looking at us. And so he spent the whole day staring at these six places. And he basically had a fit after court on Wednesday about being forced to look at the, oh, and it wasn't working. We were still getting in his peripheral vision. So when I get up there, you hear me basically mocking that. And then you'll also see, I try really hard at times. I wore a shirt with red sleeves on purpose mm-hmm. and I try to move so that I catch his eye yeah. because there is no way in hell I'm going to make his life easier no. that he can't see us. I'm going to do all the things that I know can cause somebody to have to look. Yeah. So that the podcast has, it's fueled me as much as I think people who have enjoyed hearing what's going on behind the scenes um, enjoyed it. So I think with the close of the trial and I, I look at the podcast and I think what are, there are things I'd love to talk about. And that's maybe what I'll end up doing is just becoming a um, Jen's talking podcast, yeah, which yeah. I don't know, I guess that's something people like, um, but if it works for me and, and if there are a few people out there who enjoy it, then I'm, I'll, I'll try to keep it going because um, I really have enjoyed my listeners so much. I've loved listening to it. I listened to it during the first lockdown here, but for people that haven't listened, explain the podcast to them. Like what, what's in the podcast? So it's called The Lawyer's Daughter. And it is, a, it's essentially a daily or a, a, a frequent diary of what I was going through. And I'll be very clear. It's what I was going through yeah. with the case in the spring of 2020. When we were moving quickly, we had a pandemic. We had Black Lives Matter. <laughs> we had Joseph D'Angelo. And it is insanity. And, and I think that's also some of it. It's like when you go look back, you go, oh my God, that was so much. I mean, we're holding court in a ballroom of a college, my old college, actually, my old alma mater. <laughs> and we're wearing masks. And it's weird because this is a man who wore a mask. I mean, there's just so many things going on. So my podcast takes you through all of that. Some of it's um, heart-wrenchingly emotional. There's one podcast I do where... 
I went out and checked with my kid and I said, I really want to do this while I'm upset because we always forget how upset we are Mm -hmm. later. And we forget how much something tore us apart at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I know people think I'm crazy, especially folks who jumped in on that one. It has to do with HBO. They jump in on that one and go, this lady's nuts. Well, if you'd followed along, you'd know by that point, pretty much was nuts because (laughs) the world was doing everything in its power to drive me bonkers. Our case in Ventura has some extra features. Um, We are the only case that had a suspect in Ventura and who was um, essentially went through a preliminary trial. I talk about that. We have a stalker. I have a stalker. So we talk about that. Her name is, her name is, uh, I don't want to give her name because I'm going to give her any airtime, but it's in the podcast. We have, my case has HBO and Orange County and crazy, crazy stuff that happened in addition to, I'm sorry. Some of the stuff people wouldn't believe until they hear that it's real and it's a real story. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, you don't really, I, there's still times when I go, uh, I am um, a middle-aged white lady who raised a kid by herself. I was a single mom by choice. I ended up using a sperm donor. Not wasn't my plan. I had planned to get married, but it didn't happen. I go, I'm such a like nothing. And suddenly life was just crazy with very big things going on. I mean, you add media, the media was massive and that yeah. was just its own beast. And then you have HBO, you have people people who don't belong in our crime being involved in our crime yeah it's it is a lot when you and you have the blessing and I do think this is a blessing and you have the blessing of notoriety because what happens when you have notoriety is that you don't get a lot of blowback and normal sexual assault victims get a ton of blowback mm-hmm. and and I absolutely positively know we were in a special bubble all of us part of this crime as, uh, as victims were in a special bubble because we didn't get shat upon, but many other, most victims of sexual assault have yes. to fight their way out of that shame and that ugliness. So um, it is, it, it was privilege in that regard and I'm very aware of it. I, I'm grateful for it because I don't think I could have handled one more thing, but but it was, we, we were untouchable at a certain level. Yeah. Where can people listen to the podcast or find out a bit more about the podcast? Ah, so easy. It's called The Lawyer's Daughter. And you can go to lawyersdaughter.com and you have all kinds of ways you can look at it. You can also see on lawyersdaughter.com, I also have some of the stories, um, my victim impact statements. There's some articles from Medium, things about like the killer, killer, uh, a Golden State killer economy. There's, there's some things I think about big things, um, can't help it, but so there's a lot there and, and I, and you can always email me. My contact information is there too. Love hearing from folks and, um, and my Scottish roots. They're in Scotland. <laughs> it's very exciting for me, even though I've never been, I can, I will, I will be you in need Scotland. To come over. Yeah. Yes. When the I pandemic's will over, you need to come over. <laughs> yeah. I cannot wait. Yes. And if I, if my mom's still around and taking her with me, cause she's the don, she's the McDonald 